turn in your Bibles to Psalm 8. And this is God's word to you today. So let's get it before us. Um, You may be turning there, but in any case, if you don't have it or if you do, listen. This really is, we do believe that this is God's word to you today. Uh, Whatever you're coming to church with, um, whatever distractions, uh, hear this word. Let the Spirit move in your life through it. Psalm 8, starting in verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouths of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen. And also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray one more time uh, before we get into the sermon. Heavenly Father, send your spirit. We need him. Work in our hearts. Take away our distractions. Um, Help this sermon to not only go into the ears of Uh, your people here, but to hit their hearts, to hit my heart, um, that we would be changed by it, that we would uh, move to make our lives uh, be built on it, uh, on your word. And Lord, I I pray that through the spirit, you would preach a better sermon than I'm capable of today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was in a fraternity in college, Pi Kappa Alpha, and we did lots of weird things. Uh, But one thing that I appreciated about my experience is how much thought was put into the little details uh, so that experiences were meaningful. And one night, I was not yet initiated into the fraternity, but I had pledged to be initiated. They blindfolded us. They probably don't do this anymore. Uh, They blindfolded us and drove us in silence 45 minutes away. I have no idea where they drove us. There were 50 of us pledges. And they got us out of the cars, still blindfolded under an overpass in the middle of nowhere. And they read us a passage of scripture upon which our founders based the name of our fraternity. Um, Probably four-fifths of them didn't even know what the scripture meant, but they read it out of ritual. And we could hear strange noises around us, and then we smelled smoke and fire. Uh, They instructed us to remove our blindfolds, and the only thing we could see were the large Greek letters, Pi Kappa Alpha, uh, set ablaze. And then they put our blindfolds back on and we rode back to Edmond, uh, where the image of Pi Kappa Alpha literally burning in our minds with the only words we heard being the scripture passage that was read. Now, that's all strange and very cultish, Um, but it was effective. It was effective. If you've ever opened your eyes after closing them for a long time, you fix your eyes on something bright and then immediately close them again, you'll know that that image that you saw sticks in your mind. You can close your eyes and see it. And every single pledge will tell you that he can close his eyes and remember that sight of those letters. I've often read that scripture and contemplated the Greek words for which Pi Kappa Alpha stand, which 
I can't share with you because I'm sworn to secrecy. <laughs> um, but for us as Christians, we live by faith and not by sight. The way in, we, in which we behold God himself is not through the eyes, but in the heart. As we meditate on his word and follow in his way, and as we submit to a merciful king, we behold Christ through the spirit that dwells in our hearts and minds. And here's what I want you to see this morning in Psalm 8. Since we are created in God's image, we are empowered for his mission by beholding his majesty. Let me repeat that. Since we are created in God's image, we are empowered for his mission by beholding his majesty. I want to call your attention to a few introductory points so that we can understand this psalm better. First, one way of viewing the psalms is in three categories of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. Psalms of orientation don't really have much tension at all. They paint the picture of a world that is ordered and good. This includes psalms of creation, uh, wisdom, blessing, etc. And converse, conversely, psalms of disorientation are basically laments, confessions, uh, imprecations, or curses. They focus on the fallen world. They mourn it and appeal to God as judge. Psalms of reorientation have in view a greater sense of joy. Having been through the phases of orientation and disorientation, these psalms reorient the reader to a greater redemption and restoration in the world that inspires praise and thanksgiving. Note that Psalm 8 is in that first category. It's a psalm of orientation. It's meant to show us the goodness and majesty of the Lord, our Lord. And second, I want you to notice the way in which God is addressed in this psalm. It starts out verse 1 saying, O Lord, our Lord. The psalm begins with a direct address to Yahweh, which is the covenant name of God. You can tell this in your English translation when L-O-R-D is capitalized. This is his holy name. And then the passage renames and adds to this by using the plural, our Lord. In other words, this refers to God as our sovereign master and king. I want you to remember that this address to the Lord clearly expresses that God is our God and the sovereign creator. Is there a better way to orient our hearts to behold God's majesty than to begin the psalm this way? That to begin the psalm with the fact that God shall be our God, we shall be his people, and all power and majesty belongs to him as creator and king of all things. Let's then behold his majesty as taught in this wonderful psalm. Since we are created in God's image, we are empowered for his mission by beholding his majesty. First, we're empowered for his mission by beholding God's immensity. What do I mean by immensity? Look at verse 1 and verses 3 and 4. In verse 1, the psalmist calls into view God's majesty specifically in all the earth. And then he moves to proclaim that the Lord's glory is above the heavens. Basically, what he is saying is that nothing can contain the glory of God. It has so overflowed the earth and spilled over into the heavens that it has risen above all things. His majesty and glory are immense, infinite, uncontainable, unstoppable, magnificent, powerful, renowned, wonderful, excellent, worthy of all our devotion and thought. So knowing that all of creation is full of glory, full of the glory of the Lord, the psalmist meditates on the vastness of outer space, the vastness of the sun and moon and stars. 
and in, 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 his insig- in his insignificance strikes him as he's meditating on this. Verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. We'll come back to this verse in the next point, but understand this principle. When we meditate on the immensity of God, we must inevitably be struck by our weakness and our frailty. Our lives are but a mist. We are insignificant. When compared with the glory of God, we are infinitesimal specks of dust. There is no worth in ourselves that makes us wanted or needed. We are worms to a king, dirt to a skyscraper, ants to an aircraft carrier. Why should God be mindful of us? When we we behold the sovereign Lord of the universe who created all things out of nothing, what could we possibly offer him? My favorite vacation that I've ever been on was to the Grand Canyon. My family rented a passenger van and we drove through several states. We visited people along the way. We went through forests and plains and deserts. The landscape of the American Southwest is riveting and expansive. We saw great storms and little cactuses, buffalo roaming the hills, eagles flying high in the mountains. We saw the crater from the meteor meteor in Winslow, Arizona. Uh, But nothing prepared me for when I saw the Grand Canyon. We were driving up to it, and it seemed like all the other places we had driven to. There were lots of trees, and then almost instantly we reached just space and majesty. Um, It was like a painting, but better than it. Uh, It's the only time in my life where I've been so awestruck that my jaw dropped. It looked like the most beautiful painting ever. And C.S. Lewis writes, We do not want merely to see beauty, We want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become a part of it. That's why we've peopled air and earth and water with gods and goddesses and nymphs and elves. I felt that way when I saw the Grand Canyon. There's no other way to describe the moment I saw it except to say that I wanted to be a part of its beauty. There was a tour guide explaining how big the Grand Canyon was by comparing it to football fields. Uh, We spent the day there, and then we started driving back to where we were staying. My dad asked if we remembered the tour guide comparing the Grand Canyon to different things, and we all said we did. And then, and this has always stuck with me, he profoundly said, um, I can remember even, even his voice when he said it, when we look at things like the Grand Canyon, we have to remember to compare them to God. How much bigger is he than the Grand Canyon? Infinitely bigger. And in that moment, I felt sort of shame that I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> I considered myself this wonderful Christian. I, I didn't even think, I was, I was so awestruck by the Grand Canyon that I didn't even think of how much infinitely bigger God was. But also in that moment, I just felt humbled. How small I am. How insignificant I am. There's no, there's, there's nothing that I could hold up to God that I could even begin to understand how big he is, how immense he is. No matter how much I think my, my brain holds on to it, He's bigger. And when we behold God's immensity, we must be struck with our insignificance. This drives us to him. There's nothing that we can create in ourselves of any worth when we separate it from the creator and ruler of all creation. Again, C.S. Lewis says this, this act of creation as it is for God must always remain totally inconceivable to man. For we, even our poets and musicians and inventors, never in the ultimate sense, make. We only build. We always have materials to build from. 
All we can know about the act of creation must be derived from what we can gather about the relation of the creatures to their creator. Friends, the God of the universe and king of all things has called you, insignificant as you are, to his mission. You are called to the Great Commission. Um, in RUF, we say to reach and equip his people for his purposes. And there's nothing you could offer. And there's no glory you could give to God that would make him more glorious. There's no majesty that he needs from you, and yet he has called you to his purposes. The God who has no need of anything has invited you into his everything that you might reflect his glory to the world. Beholding his, his immensity works humility into your heart. You know your place before God, which is utterly helpless. All you can do is cry out to the Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Or God be merciful to me, a sinner. God is not too small or restricted in power to do something about your predicament. If you struggle in your faith, he creates faith out of nothing. If you are worried about your circumstances, he created the world and all the people in it. Will he not also care for you? If you're afraid that sharing your faith with your friends or inviting them to church will somehow mess up what you want with your life or relationships, who are you to know? God has called you to faith. Our God is great, and you could spend your entire life dwelling on his greatness, and still there would be more to know about him. And so lean into that immensity. Ponder it. Wonder think on it. Second, not only are we empowered for his mission by beholding his immensity, but also by beholding his imminence. Look at verse 5. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. In other words, God has not left mankind to himself. Imminence is one of those fancy theological terms that you learn in seminary, unless you're a nerd uh, and already know what that means. Nerds rule the world, by the way. Uh, but in any case, in systematic theology, imminence refers to the nearness of the Lord as an attribute of his character. Imminence tells us that God is always near to and present in his creation, regardless of whether we feel like he is close. The biblical teaching on divine imminence also tells us that God promises to manifest his presence in special ways and at special times. For example, under the Old Covenant, our maker manifested his presence in a unique way in Israel's tabernacle and temple. They knew that he was present. During the earthly ministry of Jesus, God revealed himself most clearly in Christ, who is the word of God made flesh. And under every administration of the one covenant of grace, God's closeness is manifested when his people study his word. In other words, both old covenant believers and new covenant believers, you and me, have been able to count on his presence with us when we read scripture, meditate on it, study it, both through God's presence in creation and his word, ultimately fulfilled in King Jesus, do we experience God's imminence. Verse two gives us a great example of this contrast between God's immensity and our insignificance leading to his imminence. It says, out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Essentially, the point is this, God uses weak things to defeat the mighty. The psalm is declaring that this God, whose majesty and power, the whole earth and all the heavens declare and reflect, has chosen to be glorified through the weak, the vulnerable, the insufficient. Wilson will know, and any of you who have had a baby or seen a baby, the first thing out of their mouths is a cry for help, a cry for their mother, a cry for milk. 
It's, it's utter helplessness. It is to God's glory to form a frail man from the dust of the ground and then entrust dominion over that dust, over the earth, to him. It's a little unclear what's coming from the mouths of children in this passage. It could be expressions of faith or praise for God's creation or salvation uh, or even cries for help. But what it most likely refers to is a helplessness that, that cannot do anything else but cry out for help. Words by a child who appears to be insignificant will be attended to by God in his plan to establish strength to silence the wicked, especially if the cries are out of pain or terror. One commentator says this, God can take what seems to be merely desperate cries and fulfill the need by destroying whatever threatens danger to the weak and innocent or by guarding the weak from the wicked. Essentially, some individuals may appear weak and vulnerable, but they have access to divine power. This is the way that God has ordered creation. God has chosen to use the weak things to humble the mighty. He does not need people of eloquence or power. Rather, a simple cry for help will be heard by God and will overcome the world. So hear this, it does not matter how simple your faith is. It does not matter how small or insignificant you think you are. In God's glorious creation and under his sovereign rule, he will especially use the vulnerable to silence the foe. That victory will be a victory of faith even if it is just the size of a mustard seed, he is near to you. He has given the world to you that you might overcome it through him. Now, to know about God's imminence is one thing, but to feel it is another. A.W. Tozer has this great illustration of the sun to illustrate this point. A lot of Christians are trying to be happy without a sense of God's imminent presence. It's like trying to rejoice in the sun when it's overcast. You can look at your watch and know that it's noon. The sun must be out. You say to yourself, let's rejoice in the sun. Isn't it beautiful and bright? Let's take it by faith and rejoice that the sun is up, that all is well. The sun is up according to the calendar. The sun should be right about there. But as long as it's gloomy and rainy and wet, soggy leaves keep dribbling up and down, and it's dark, you're not having a bright day. Yet when the sun comes out, when the sun comes out, then you can rejoice in the presence of the sun. The reason, my friends, that we feel that God is remote is because deep down, we understand God's immensity, but we don't dwell enough on his imminence. We know we are weak and insignificant. The devil and our flesh tell us this every day. We've got enough likeness that God can commune with us and call us his children, and we can say, Abba, Father, but in the practical working out of it, the average one of us senses our dissimilarity, especially if you've been convicted of your sin, especially if your conscience is tender. And this is why God seems remote. The psalm tells us otherwise. God is both immense and imminent. Look at verse 4 again. The wording of the questions of verse 4 are rhetorical, expressing amazement and wonder. The choice of the words for man underscores his insignificance, our insignificance. The word means simple, and mortal, yet the two verbs that are used are incredible. The first is the verb, you are mindful of him. The Hebrew word is literally to remember, and it usually signifies acting on what is called to mind. Now, the psalmist is amazed that the majestic God of creation thinks of him in such a way as to do things for him, to meet his needs. The next verb is even stronger. The verb to visit usually indicates divine intervention that changes the destiny of people. And then it gets even greater in the next few verses. 
It says that the Lord has crowned mankind with glory and honor. The words for glory and honor are words that usually refer to the divine majesty. Glory stresses dignity and importance. Honor stresses external splendor. God is his imminent uh, God in his imminent grace has crowned you with these things. Dignity and importance are accomplished for you when Christ died on the cross. You have been justified and accepted as righteous before God only by the work of Christ. And your external splendor is being accomplished through your sanctification. As you grow in repentance, you're being made more and more beautiful as your sin is put off and you're clothed in righteousness. This can all be true because the God of the universe is near to you in your weakness. This is the gospel of grace. And it all leads up to the mission that God has for us to have dominion. That leads us to our third point. Not only are we empowered for his mission by beholding God's immensity and his imminence, but also by beholding his image. What do I mean by God's image? In the Presbyterian Church, we have these things called catechisms. And this isn't just a Presbyterian thing. Other denominations have catechisms. Uh, but the catechism is just a, seminar, a, a summary of the principles of Christian religion in the form of questions and answers used for the instruction of Christians. Uh, we've been going through the Heidelberg uh, Catechism in, um, in our evening services. Um, but here's the 10th question of the Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. How did God create man? It answers this way. God created man, male and female, after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. This answer is quoting Genesis in the creation account with that dominion language, just like Psalm 8 is. The righteousness, holiness, and justice come from a couple places in Paul's letters in the New Testament. Simply, the image of God is a reflection of both his character and his work. Of course, we do not and cannot do everything the Lord does, but there's an aspect of God's working, which is summarized by this word dominion. And we'll come back around to that, but first it's important to tackle that first aspect of God's character, knowledge, holiness, um, as his image, because it leads right to right in ordered dominion. They go together. So here's the concept. You become what you behold. You become what you behold. If you fill the diet of your soul with unhealthy things, unhealthy things not only come out, but you actually become that unhealth. Replace unhealth with sin. When the diet of your souls become sinful things, Sinful things not only come out, but you become that sin. It colors your life. This is why Paul in Philippians 4 writes, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And the primary way we think about these things is by beholding the image of God, his kindness and majesty toward us, fully displayed in Christ Jesus. It is true that we cannot add to the glory of God. He is so immense that he requires nothing of us. Think of the relationship between the moon and the sun. The moon does not add anything to the sun. The sun gives freely to the moon. Yet the moon never ceases to proclaim the sun's light as it reflects uh, that light to all the heavens. Every time you look at the moon, it declares the light of the sun shining on for all of time. And this is precisely how we glorify God. Our lives can be a rejection of God, like the dark side of the moon, which turns away from his light. Or we can forever be a reflection of the God of light who has so lavished us with his immense and imminent grace. 
His glory fills the earth and spills over above the heavens. Nothing can contain him. And we are made in his image, crowned with glory and honor and given dominion to proclaim that glory, to reflect it for all to see. So what is the mission that we have been given? We are called to reach the world for Christ and equip it to serve him and his people. We rely on God's imminence as we seek to proclaim his presence to the lost. And we we rely on his glorious rule as we seek to equip and disciple others for mission, whatever their calling is. What is your calling? Whatever your occupation is, give your energy to proclaiming God's glory and dominion as you work to reflect his image. Know that his majesty has so filled the earth that whatever your occupation is, um, it ultimately is a work of God's glory, whether it's finance or mechanics or business or banking or studying for school or staying home with kids, all of it is a reflection of God's glory. So work well. And obviously this isn't, mission isn't separate from a relationship of God. It, it's tied together. You, you have to come to terms with who God is before you're able to do anything. It has to be a relationship with God. It has to be beholding him. It has to be pondering him. But beware. You are made to be an image of something. You become what you behold. I think the biggest idol in our culture today is lust. Uh, you may scoff at, a man, at man-made idols of wood and stone, and yet we look to our man-made phones of metal created in our own image. When you lust after an image of a man or a woman, you are worshiping, worshiping it in a way that moves your life toward it. You know, we are made to behold and become images. What are you beholding? And this isn't limited to lust either. We have the idols of pride and self and money and status and success, what do you think about most often? What do you behold? How have sin and the idols of your heart so worked their way into your life that you fail to see God as revealed in his word? What are you beholding? Friends, what's the answer to our cycle of idolatry? It is to behold the character and dominion of God as it is pictured in his image. Jesus in the Beatitudes said this, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. When you are most tempted to your sins and idols, do you stop and think about the real fact that as you deny the corrupt desire in your souls to worship anything else than God himself, you will begin to see God. You will begin to have eyes to see Jesus. You will begin to have eyes to see uh, your heart follow after Jesus. You will begin to be sculpted after his image in knowledge and righteousness and holiness. That will lead to real purpose in your life. That will lead to ordered and good dominion as you reach and equip those around you for the glory of the infinite, eternal, imminent, marvelous, majestic God of all creation. And it is in that second person of the Trinity that we truly behold God in all his glory. Jesus did not consider his immensity and equality with God something to be grasped, but he became a little baby that he might silence the foe by becoming helpless like us. He is the God that dwells with us, Emmanuel, the epitome of God's eminence for us. He is the man who is crowned with glory and honor. And in faith, through the Holy Spirit, you are connected to him forever. He is the man who has been given all authority and dominion. He is the mediator between earth and heaven. So go, my friends, behold the image of God in Jesus Christ. Since we are created in God's image, we are empowered. You are empowered for his mission by beholding his majesty. 
You see, we were created in God's image in the beginning, but that image was marred, broken, corrupted with the fall. If left alone, man would be helpless, but Jesus came and restores the image of God in man, and he has commissioned the church to restore that image of man in the Great Commission. It is only in repenting and believing in Christ that the image is restored. And so the Great Commission is how the Lord has decided to restore his dominion in man. So you must go as you work in your callings, commissioned by God to restore mankind, only by the grace of God, on mission to proclaim his majesty. And the psalm ends with this, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's have that same mind of the hymn which says, may his beauty rest upon me as I seek the lost to win, and may they forget the channel seeing only him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your majesty that we get to see and behold in all the earth. And thank you for your word, uh, which ultimately is Jesus. Thank you for that understanding that we can discern the things of the world, that we can discern, discern good and evil, not by our experience, not left alone, uh, but because you have revealed yourself. And so, Lord, I pray that we will look at you as you are as you are taught in the Gospels, as you are proclaimed in the Scriptures. And Lord, again, I pray, just like I did at the beginning, that it would change us, that it wouldn't just be something that goes in one ear and out the other, um, but that we would be made into your image forever and ever, increasingly so, and that we would feel your nearness to us through that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.